The year is 1883 in New York City, 15 years before the headless torso murder. Joseph Pulitzer and the owners of the New York World, including Jay Gould, sit in a conference room in the paper's offices on Park Row. Several men nervously chat and puff on cigars before the meeting is called to order. Uh, would you like coffee? Uh, no, thank you. Uh, plenty awake and have enough holes in my stomach as it is. The world began publishing on the eve of the Civil War, but lately it's hit hard financial times. Its circulation has dwindled to an anemic 11,000 copies a day. Pulitzer has already revitalized a paper in St. Louis, the Post-Dispatch, and he smells an opportunity. He's come to the big city to meet with the paper's owners and make them an offer. Gould is the controlling owner of the world. Gentlemen, you have all worked very hard to keep the world turning on its axis, but I believe you need some relief. Let's cut to the chase. We're here to make a deal, right? Gould isn't just the owner of the paper. He's a notorious robber baron who made his fortune as a railroad speculator. He's come to see the newspaper as a money-losing distraction. Pulitzer has a much different vision for what newspapers can be, and he has arrived in New York intending to make it a reality. This city needs the voice of the world, but I think we all agree that the paper needs a new direction. Hmm? Hard to justify shoveling more capital into the thing, high costs, unpredictable profit margins. There are other opportunities out there to make real money, you know. I look forward to relieving you of this burden. It'll cost you $500,000. It's a hefty ask. Far higher than any previous American newspaper deal. But Pulitzer is prepared with a counter. Mr. Gould, gentlemen, I've seen the P&Ls. Your pension liabilities are a mess. Even if you turn a profit on the paper, which you currently are not, you'd still be upside down on the pensions. How about I take the paper off your hands for $300,000 and then absorb the liabilities? That'll get you to your number. Gould confers with some of the other owners around the table. He fixes his gaze on Pulitzer. Make it $350,000 and you got a deal. A small smile plays at the corner of Pulitzer's mouth. He nods his approval, and then there are handshakes all around. The world is about to get a fresh start. Enjoy a powerful business upgrade with Dell Technologies' Black Friday in July event. Get amazing savings with up to 50% off high-performance computers and tech built for business. And be able to take your office with you with Windows 10 Pro. Plus, get great offers on Dell servers, monitors, docks, and more, all with easy financing options through Dell Financial Services. Call 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. And speak with a Dell Technologies advisor today. Louisiana has unmistakably unique culture, world-class cuisine, and the nation's top-ranked workforce development program. This incredible state's business environment is powerful, rich, and diverse. It's the gateway to 38 states and the world with a port system delivering the most domestic cargo in the U.S. It's also where NASA and higher ed partners build rockets that will transport the first women to the moon. Discover Louisiana's investment resources at OpportunityLouisiana.com to learn how your company can gain a competitive advantage in Louisiana. From Wondery, 
This is Business Wars. I'm David Brown. Continuing our look at Hearst versus Pulitzer, this is one of the great business rivalries of American history. In the first two episodes, they went head-to-head covering the Headless Torso case, one of the most sensational crimes of the 19th century. Now, in this episode, we're going back a few years before that to their first encounters in New York as they compete for the hearts, minds, and wallets of their readers. You're listening to Episode 3, The Price of News. New York City's population more than tripled in the last two decades of the 19th century. When Pulitzer arrives in New York, the newspaper scene is still sleepy despite a dozen large daily papers in the city, nearly 50 if you count some of the smaller ones like the New York Times. Even so, there's still a pretty sedate bunch informing citizens about zoning board decisions and weather trends. They rarely draw any blood, stir up society, get the city talking. But that's changing, thanks to Pulitzer's world. As a former reporter, Pulitzer has sharp news instincts enhanced by his personal understanding of the immigrant experience. Joseph Pulitzer is one of many fresh transplants who have streamed into the city in search of a better life. He quickly puts his news sense to use after taking over the world. To start with, he decides to go big with coverage of the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge. Pulitzer understands the bridge is not just a symbol of the city's engineering mastery. It's also a point of pride for Italian, German, and Irish New Yorkers. Many of them have worked as laborers, earning $2 a day to make the bridge rise over the East River. His front page features a four-column woodcut showing the entire span. It's the first time the world illustrates a news story, and soon, every copy is sold out. Before long, these modest innovations help boost the world's circulation to 700,000 copies a day. Pulitzer spells out his manifesto in a column published in his earliest days at the helm. There is room in this great and growing city for a journal that is not only cheap, but bright. Not only bright but large, not only large, but truly democratic, dedicated to the cause of the people rather than the purse potentates, devoted more to the news of the new than to the old world. And from the beginning, Pulitzer forms a special bond with his readers. He may look like he was born with a silver spoon, but as an immigrant himself, Pulitzer understands the injustice and hardship faced by struggling New Yorkers. He identifies with victims of any kind of suffering. And so Pulitzer doesn't shy away from covering crime or human tragedy. In fact, they become the lifeblood of the world. One Monday morning in the spring of 1883, Pulitzer is in his new office at the world headquarters. An editor hands Pulitzer a layout sheet. He studies the page through his thick, round glasses. The story is about 11 people crushed to death when a Sunday stroll turned into a human stampede. The headline seems a little tame. It's straightforward, boss. It tells you what you need to know. We need to do more than that. We need to tell a story 
11 people are dead. But this happened on a Sunday. A spiritual day becomes catastrophe in an instant. How about baptism in blood? Well, it fits. And you really want to run that diagram showing where they all died? You sure about that? Absolutely. The editor takes back the layout sheet. All right, I'm on it. Pulitzer has a gut instinct for human interest stories that will hook his readers. But he doesn't just traffic in sensationalism. He also features dazzling adventure tales and tries to better society by exposing injustice. He hires a reporter from Pennsylvania named Elizabeth Cochran, who writes under the pseudonym Nellie Bly. In short order, she becomes the paper's star reporter and the talk of the town. In one of her first stories, she feigns insanity and gets herself committed to the asylum on the slip of land in the East River now known as Roosevelt Island. Her expose of conditions there is not for the faint-hearted. She describes spoiled meat and dirty water served at mealtimes, patients tied together with rope. After freezing cold baths, they are made to sit all day on hard benches with rats crawling over their feet. The stories prompt a grand jury investigation and massive reforms. With Bly and other writers establishing the world's voice, Pulitzer uses innovative New York-centric promotions to pull readers in. In 1885, he launches a campaign to raise $100,000 to build a pedestal for the Statue of Liberty, the gift from France that recently arrived in New York Harbor. He follows that up with a contest to craft an inscription for the statue's massive pedestal. The winner is a poet named Emma Lazarus. Her submission begins, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. By the late 1880s, Pulitzer is the leading newsman in his adopted city of New York. Pulitzer relied on savvy negotiating and self-reliance to get to the top of the New York heap. But his rival, William Randolph Hearst, often fell back on his family fortune to get his start as media mogul. His father, George, had bought the San Francisco Examiner. He installed Hearst, an ambitious but wayward son who was then just 23, as the publisher. But Hearst has a bigger prize in mind, the financially troubled New York Morning Journal. Will Hearst, as he was known in his younger years, also has smarts, and he knows how to appeal to his mother's instinct for indulgence. In fact, that's his plan, when in 1895, he sits with her in the living room of the Hearst home in the hills of San Francisco. Beyond the picture windows, the sun-splashed bay spreads out in front of them. Mother, you know how I feel about running the examiner. It has been such a thrill. I really feel this is my calling. I see that. Your father would be proud. I, I really feel ready to take the next step. Oh, and what is that? New York City. I hear the journal is on the block. She's got a lot of life in her. I think I could really give it a go. Phoebe Hurst pauses a beat and looks intently at her son. You know what that would also mean, don't you? You could finally show that Joseph Pulitzer a thing or two. Hurst smiles. He knows he will have his chance. From the moment the journal's new general arrives, his tenure is defined by one word, color. 
He spares no expense when it comes to installing the very latest printing equipment. The journal quickly assembles the best color Sunday supplement in the country, an eight-page selection of popular comics. Hearst promotes it in lavish print ads, written with a kind of bravado that grabs readers right by the collar. Eight pages of iridescent polychromous effervescence. It makes the rainbow look like lead pipe. Talent is another cornerstone for Hearst. Just as he did in San Francisco, where he hired writers like Mark Twain, Hearst spares no expense bringing in top-flight reporters and editors. He recruits now-forgotten names like Sam Chamberlain and Julian Ralph, two of the biggest stars of their day. With his nearly unlimited resources, Hearst also hires away much of the world's staff. He likes to conclude hastily arranged recruiting meetings by writing reporters' checks for double their old salaries. Another handy use for Hearst's fortune, bankrolling a multitude of daily editions. From 9 a.m., crisp copies start rolling off the presses with news as fresh as the ink. Updated editions appear almost hourly, sometimes late into the night. Hearst's well-paid troops turn up the heat in the battle with the world. They cover the full spectrum of headlines for a city whose population is diversifying by the minute. The journal wants to hook both the working-class readers grabbing a copy on their commute and the Carnegie Hill families keeping tabs on the social register. The journal will just as soon cover the Vanderbilt Marlboro wedding as it would a deadly saloon robbery. Things have changed fast at the journal, but the dominant player is still Pulitzer. Hearst, though, will use an advantage that has nothing at all to do with reporting to tilt the playing field in a big way. Where's my order? Where's my order? Where's my order? Break free from customer support monotony. Welcome to Intercom for Customer Support, the business messenger that uses chatbots, shared inboxes, apps, and more. Intercom's business messenger resolves questions that can be answered automatically, so customer support feels less like Groundhog Day and more like help is on the way. Go to intercom.com support to learn more about Intercom's business messenger for customer support. Birthdays, holidays, promotions, getting that last sprinkle donut. There's a lot in this world worth celebrating, but nothing is worth celebrating more than knowledge, especially knowledge that will pay off, like understanding how compound interest works, knowing how to check your investment professional's background, or figuring out your risk tolerance or finally understanding all those terms your friends keep throwing around like ETF, ESG, and ICO. Go to Investor.gov today to learn about these investment products and more. How much do you already know about investing? Find out by putting your financial knowledge to the test with their new investment quiz. Investor.gov is your unbiased resource for valuable investment information, tools, and tips. Before you invest, Investor.gov. Since his arrival in New York, Hearst has keenly monitored his rival's every move. And on this day in October 1896, he's poring over a stack of the morning papers. He's in the master bedroom of his suite at the Hoffman House, the grandest hotel in the city. He spent a few nights there when he first got to town, and now it's his home. Room service dishes are scattered over the gleaming furniture. 
Hearst has summoned his managing editor, Sam Chamberlain, to the suite to do some planning. The world is turning swiftly, Sam. Pulitzer seems to be cramming more sensational news than ever into his pages. Plenty of stories left for the taking, sir. We just need to light a fire under our boys. Indeed, indeed. I did also wonder about the cover price. Uh, we've been at two cents for years, sir. Yes, yes, but we are never going to be the number one newspaper in America if we don't take a few risks, huh? So, on November 1st, 1896, William Randolph Hearst gathers his editors together to announce the decision. A new day is dawning, everyone. We are about to reach more New Yorkers than ever before. We're lowering our cover price from two cents to one. His editor has prepared a tagline to trumpet the move. How do you like this one with a new motto, Chief? The editor passes him a proof of page one and Hearst beams. I love it. One for the ages. You can't get more news. You can't pay less than one cent. <laughs> All right. Let's give him the best news we've got. Great stories are the coin of the realm, but actual coins are also on Hearst's mind. Hearst is once again relying on his deep pockets, with dozens of papers jockeying for readers' attention and Pulitzer's world on top. Hearst knows he needs a quick way to stand out. He knows he can withstand the financial losses for a while at least. He stands to win in any scenario. If the world stays at two cents, Hearst can smear Pulitzer as out of step with a common reader. If the paper cuts its price to try to match the journal, Hearst will have succeeded in driving down the world's profit margins. His move could put Pulitzer out of business. Word of the journal's price gambit doesn't take long to travel uptown to Pulitzer's townhouse on East 73rd Street. Pulitzer maintains his price. A few days later, he's in his study rubbing his temples. Pulitzer has always prized hard work, and he's always believed his readers would pay for quality. In St. Louis, he managed to resist a similar attempt by a rival paper to draw his post-dispatch into a circulation war. But now? Well, now he wonders about his chances of successfully holding out against Hearst's vast fortune. The journal isn't just cutting the price for the same product. Hearst is improving the paper, and making it cheaper. Pulitzer's wife, Catherine, enters the study. She's helped her husband navigate the many business decisions of their first decade in New York. She knows he is at another major crossroads. Joseph, Hearst's gamble does seem to be working. One of the trades said the journal's circulation is up 30%. How much longer do you think you can hold out? I have to do something, or else everything we've worked for could be at risk. Catherine smooths a lock of his hair back on his head. It can't last forever. You could go down to a penny for a little while. You know, you both will raise prices eventually, right? He gives her a pained look. <sighs> we can start running ads about the new price on Sunday, I suppose. The financial hit taken by Pulitzer puts a major dent in his finances, which he often frets about. Pulitzer has often been a spendthrift. For years, he'd say to Catherine... I'm down to my last cent. A bit of an exaggeration, really. The Pulitzers have multiple homes and a 300-foot yacht. But Pulitzer hasn't forgotten what it was like growing up in Hungary under Austria's harsh martial law. He's never managed to shake the need to hoard every last resource. 
Now, the price war is threatening to cut his revenues in half. It's an actual cash crunch, and he has to figure out how to cut expenses at the world. Just a couple of months before, the paper had installed a four-color printing press, one of the country's first. It costs a fortune, but it lets the paper publish its famous Yellow Kid comic in all its multicolored glory. The world even ran a full-page color ad for its Sunday edition. All the news and gossip from the summer resorts, it promised. Beautifully illustrated, wonderful pictures. Now, with more than a million dollars tied up in that machine, the cuts will have to come from someplace else. Namely, the workforce. It's humiliating. At the very moment he's trying to project a superior premium image to the public and his competitors, Pulitzer will have to hand out pink slips. And with the layoffs comes another big threat. Even in good times, Hearst has made a sport of wooing away the world staff. Now, Hearst could easily pick off the surviving talent of the paper, which would cripple it. How can the world hope to fend him off? Pulitzer wakes up before his usual 6 a.m. and gets into a waiting carriage for the trip downtown to the world headquarters. He's resigned to the difficult task ahead of him. When he arrives, the newsroom is empty. He closes himself up in his office and begins drafting a memo to the staff, trying to explain why some of them are being let go. His list includes mostly recent hires, along with a few of the high-ticket names at the top of the masthead. As sunlight starts to flood the offices of the world, Pulitzer stands in his doorway and watches the staff filing in. He knows he'd better get started. Hobbs, can you come into my office, please? Felton Hobbs, a young reporter, hurries over and sits down. I'm going to get right to it. Unfortunately, we've had to tighten our belt. Uh, We are going to have to let you go. Now, I know this is probably upsetting. Hobbs leaps to his feet. Sure, I'll go get my things. Right now. Can you pay me for this week? Uh, Of course. I will say you do seem rather upbeat. It's easy to be upbeat when Hearst is still hiring. Pulitzer soon makes it official. He drops to one cent to keep pace with the journal. The world has only been around since 1860, less than four decades. At its height, it was the world's biggest paper, selling 600,000 copies a day. But now, it's already dipped to 500,000 under pressure from Hearst's New York Journal. At their new cover price, the margin for error for Pulitzer and Hearst is thinner than ever. Who is going to win this price war? Before long comes a new development, one that could lift both papers' fortunes on the faraway island of Cuba. Pulitzer and Hearst both see a chance to stem the flow of red ink from their circulation war by pushing for the U.S. to declare war in Cuba against Spain. Their actions will leave a mark on the media that remains to this very day. That's on the next episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Business Wars, and we invite you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, NPR, iHeartRadio, or wherever you're listening right now. 
You'll find a link on the episode notes. Simply tap or swipe over the cover art. And you'll also see some offers from our sponsors. We hope you'll support our show by supporting them. If you like what you're hearing, we'd love you to give us a five-star rating and review us. And be sure to tell your friends and show them how to subscribe while you're at it. Another way you can support the show is by filling out a small survey at Wondery.com survey. I'm your host, David Brown. Dade Hayes wrote today's story. He's a contributing editor for Deadline and the author of Open Wide. Edited and produced by Jenny Lauer. Sound designed by Bay Area Sound. Our executive producers are Marshall Louie and Hernan Lopez. For Wondery. Looking for the hottest takes and the spiciest celebrity gossip? Look no further. Welcome to Rich and Daily the all-new podcast from Wondery that's going to bring you up to speed on all of Hollywood's most current secrets and scandals. Need to know what Harry and Meghan are up to? What's the latest in Britney's conservatorship hearing? We've got you covered. I'm Arisha Skidmore-Williams, and along with my bestie and fellow celeb news fanatic, Brooke Sifrin, we're bringing you the latest entertainment gossip every Monday through Friday. Is that rumor you heard about Rihanna true? If it is, you better believe we'll have something to say about it. So if you want to be in the know about who's been seen with whom and who's in and who's out, join us on Rich and Daily, because we don't just listen to the rumor mill. We give you the celebrity facts as they happen. Listen to Rich and Daily on Amazon Music, or you can listen to episodes ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. With Rich and Daily, feel the gossip. Wondery, feel the story.